Good morning. If you want to, you can go ahead and turn to James chapter 4 with me. There's a few things that I, I want to say before I get started. Uh, the first of which is this men's retreat. And I heard uh, Mr. Nick's uh, pray, Brother Nick's pray, and I really appreciated the prayer that he prayed uh, because he stressed a few things that I think are important to this congregation, or it should be important to all, but that I really see in Valley View. The first of which is, is we're intentionally trying to grow uh, not only outwardly, but inwardly. We need to be growing in relation to one another. And there are the two things that are coming up that we're about to do that specifically aim in that, and that's the ladies and the guys' retreats. If at all possible, if you can, uh, guys, please, 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 go to this men's retreat. Well, I've never, I had never golfed in my life. I have never picked up a golf club. I will golf, people. You will not be a worse golfer than me. Give it a shot. Come out with us and have a good time. And ladies, do the same also. I know y'all's is going to be awesome because ladies know what they're doing, all right? So if you can, come to these retreats and be a part of that. And the second thing that I heard him stress is that not only do we want to grow inwardly together, but we want to grow outwardly to our community. This is the light on the hill. Uh, we need to be going out and, and into our community, and we're trying to do that. Uh, and one thing that I've seen just this weekend that we did was when we packed uh, those, those meals for those people who, who were without. That's something that we can be doing to shine a light in our community and, and throughout the entire world. That's what Valley View is about, and that's what we want to be about. And then before I get started, one more thing that I want to say. Did you see John McKnight get up here and try not to gloat about his, about his cooking championship? Ryan Altum, I saw this on Facebook the, day, the other day. His wife posted, Ryan literally had nightmares that he would have been sabotaged by Ed Butterworth trying to hurt his chances at winning the prize. And Ryan, I guess he didn't pull it out, but I don't think it was because he messed him up. I know all three of those guys, I've eaten Ed's food. And if Ed came in third, first and second must have been awesome, is all I can say, because that man can cook. So if you would, please look to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. But before we get there, uh, I want to talk a little bit about something that Paul says. Paul says that marriage is a strange thing. Now, I want you to think with me, why would Paul say marriage is a strange thing? It's because he never got married. He never got married. Of course, to Paul, marriage was a strange thing. But it wasn't just because it was marriage that it was strange to him. He says there was one aspect of marriage in particular that he, seen, he thought seemed really uh, strange. And this text points that out. He says that our marriages, our marriages will be an example to our children and our great-grandchildren. And everybody who sees them, people will look at our marriages and see Christ's relationship to his church. Now here's what I hope, and here's what I would hope that you hope for in your marriage. I would hope that you would hope that when your great-grandchildren or your children or the people that view your marriage would say, I know, I know the love Christ has for his church because I've seen the love that my father has for my mother 
or my grandfather has for my grandmother. Don't you want that too? Don't you want that, Brother Lindell, where your grandchildren can look at you and your wife's marriage and say, I know Christ loves the Lord, or the Lord loves his church. Don't you want that? But here's what I've got to tell you, and and this is another scary thing. Our marriages will, 100% of the time, be an example, but it might not always be the example we wish that it was. Jack, I want to thank you for sitting down with me today. I set these chairs close to each other on purpose. It's because we haven't sat in the same room or looked at each other or talked to each other or slept in the same bed and I don't know how long. Jack, look at me. Pay attention to me. Where are you? Where have you been? Why don't you come home? Why don't you want to be with me and with our kids? And where are you spending all hours of the night staying? Look, I know. I know that I haven't been here the way that I should, but you know what? You just nag and nag and nag, and maybe it's, it's not all my fault that I'm not here. Maybe, maybe some of it is your fault too. You are the stereotypical wife that they had always told me about, but I didn't think possibly you would have been. But boy, have you ever become that wife? Well, I'm hurt. And I thought maybe if I just approached you about it, you would just admit it. But since you, would, you won't admit it, I'm going to have to ask, is there somebody else? No, there's nobody else. My hands are clean. My sheets are clean. You know me, and you know I'm committed to this marriage. I have been with nobody else. How dare you accuse me? Well, maybe you haven't been with somebody else, but to me, you do certainly feel like you're withdrawn. You don't want to be with me, and you'd rather be somewhere else. And I I don't know what it is that you're committing to rather than me and the kids, but it might be your sports team. Maybe it's that Alabama football that you love so much, or maybe, maybe it's your work buddies, or maybe you're an alcoholic and you're going to bars. I don't know what it is that you're spending all hours of the nights doing, but I know... I know that if you aren't here with us, I know that if you're drawing yourself away, that while you're drawing yourself away from us, that you're pulling yourself towards somebody else. I just want you to come home. Our marriages will, every single time, tell the world about Christ's relationship with his church. The problem is, not every single time is it a positive thing. Sometimes it's our brokenness that shows the way Christ is being treated by his church. I want you to look with me to James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And as we look there, I'm going to give you an assignment about something to look for. James's church is going through a, simil- a situation similar to this. And James tells them what's happening to them. So as I read, I'm going to give you an assignment because without an assignment, I don't pay attention. Here's what I want you to look for. As we read this text, I want you to pay attention to any horizontal relationships. Now this is what I mean by that. Anytime something's mentioned between Kerrigan and her friend, or you and your friend, or you and your friend, or me and that person, I want you to take note of that. Anything, it's anytime something's mentioned between two people, take note. 
circle it, highlight it, and keep it in your back pocket. And there's a second thing I want you to pay attention to. Anytime there's anything mentioned between you and your God, or you and your God, or you and your God, anybody and God, pay attention to that. The words will, words will change when it happens. Take note of it and keep it in your back pocket because James does it for a really important purpose. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among all y'all? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you're killing each other. You covet and cannot obtain, so you're fighting each other and you're quarreling with each other. You do not have, because you do not ask who? God. You ask and do not receive, because you're asking God wrongly, so that you can spend it on your passion. You are cheating on him, people. Now, have you ever messed up something so bad that you thought the problem was one thing when in reality the problem was another thing entirely? I know that I have. Because not long after me and Madison got married, they had told us, they had said, you'll be poor. But I didn't think we'd be poor as quickly as we got poor. But buddy, did it happen fast. We had two cars, and her grandfather gave us this van that they had had. It had never dropped a lick of oil the whole time they own it. They give us the keys. The bottom falls out of that thing. It is spewing oil everywhere. The van is gone, and we had to sell it for some scrap money. We had that truck. Now, Madison's got to go to class, and if she misses two days of student teaching for her degree, if she misses two days, it's gone. The degree is gone. Sirenara, start the program over. Start somewhere else, but it ain't happening here. And I was terrified. She gets to work on that, that day. She had already missed one day, and she turns the car over, and instead of it turning over, it goes bang, 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 bang. And I knew. She called me, and she said, listen, what does this sound like? And she puts it up to the, to the car, and I'm hearing these bangs, and I said, turn it off now. Turn the truck off. We had it uh, towed to a mechanic. We get to the mechanic, and he said, you never had this bad, you didn't bust a rod like you thought you did. What you really had a problem with was your spark plug. Do you want to know why my spark plug blew? I had driven 100,000 miles in this truck, and since my father gave it to me, I haven't changed the air filter one time, not once. And I don't know how that is connected but he told me if I had just ever changed my air filter, this wouldn't have happened to me. I thought I had a problem when in reality the heart problem, the problem that was true, was something entirely different. In James's church, they thought they had one problem. They thought this, this is obviously the problem that we're having in our church. And in reality, the heart of the issue was a different problem entirely. So if you pay attention in the text, you can see James's elders, the elders at this church, writing to James and asking him questions. Now, it doesn't blatantly say, James, help us out with this, but James answers the problems because he had already talked to them. So as they ask him a question, it works like the titles to every one of my sermons this far. And you've heard enough of my sermons to understand this. They say, James, we've got these arrogant 
false teachers. And don't get us wrong, we don't think that they're blatantly teaching something that, that is just hatefully untrue. We just think that maybe it's not a good thing for them to preach because it isn't gospel. Or they may say, James, we've got these wealthy members. <laughs> and don't get us wrong, we do not want to upset the wealthy members. But we just wonder if our membership here is kind of playing favorites with them because they let them sit in the fancy seats and put everybody else on the floor. Or they may say, James, we've got these members who are saying all that you need to do is believe to be saved. You don't have to serve anybody in the church. Just believe. And James answers their problems. But he knows that's not the real problem. He takes a Band-Aid out, and he opens it up, and he fixes a problem at a time, chapter by chapter by chapter. He takes out that Band-Aid, and he Band-Aids their problems away. It looks like this. You've got teachers who are teaching falsely. Tell them that if they teach falsely, they'll be judged more harshly. Band-Aid. You've got people playing favorites with the wealthy people. Tell them favoritism leads to death. Band-Aid. He says, you've got people who are saying that you don't have to do any works to be saved. Tell them faith without works is dead. Band-Aid. And one by one by one, James fixes the problems between you and you, and you and you, and you and me, but he hasn't yet preached about the real problem, and the real problem was always about a relationship problem between them and God. There's a bigger problem here, and the church is missing it. And the root of all the problems, every one of the problems that this church has and that church has and the people before Christ came was a lack of vertical relationship. It wasn't the problems between our brothers and sisters that we thought we had. It was always a problem between them and God. So I want you to look back with me to verses 1 through 3. We're going to look there one more time, and I want you to notice if you can tell something. It's as if James takes out that Band-Aid one more time. He's going to fix one more problem between the horizontal relationships, and he stops. And he says, you need a heart transplant. You don't need any more Band-Aids. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 one more time. Notice when he stops talking about problems between the two people and starts talking about a problem between you and God. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among all of you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within all of you? You all desire, but you all do not have, so you all are killing each other. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you are fighting each other and you are quarreling with each other. And then he stops. <coughs> you do not have, because you do not ask. Who? Not your brothers and sisters, but the real problem is between you and God. Do you see what happens? He starts talking about this problem and reveals that it was the other problem the whole time. And church, this is beside the point, but this is what I wonder. I wonder if the way that we treat one another says a lot about the way that we actually talk and think about our God. There's a connection there 
So I'm going to give you a challenge, and you don't have to do it if you don't want to do it, but if you want to grow spiritually, I know you'll do it if you do this because I did it in college. It's something called a prayer journal, and this is what you do. When you go home tonight, take out your iPhone or take out a notepad, and once a day, I hope you're praying more than this, but once a day, write down one of your prayers to God. Do that every day for a month. Write out your prayers to God. And then at the end of that month, don't review it. Stick that notebook underneath your mattress. And in a month's time or two months' time, come back to that notepad again and look back over the things that you read. And notice if you've been praying for anything that might be selfish, like James talks about, things of passion. Or if you're talking about all the beef that you've got with your brothers and sisters in the church. Or if you ever, ever mention anything about the relationship you have between yourself and your God. Take note of that because I tell you, if you pay attention to that, you're going to figure out something about your relationship between you and God. It's going to happen. It's as if in this text, James says that there's a direct correlation between the way you treat one another and the relationship that you have with your God. And here's James' point. If you do not care about God's people, then it's because you do not care about your God. I'm going to say it again. If you do not care about God's people, then it's because you do not care about your God. That's the real issue. They had missed it. They had hated each other so long that they didn't even know there was a problem between themselves and God. And James pleads, and he loves this church, and he preaches to this church, and he wants them to see, and they've completely forgotten the whole reason that they were even a church to begin with. And they have missed it. Look at verse 4 one more time. James chapter 4, verse 4, and see what he says. You adulterous people... Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Is that how he reads it? No. He hurts. He's in pain. He has pledged his life to these people because of their God. And he reads it and he hurts and he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's how he writes it. He hurts in every single line he hurts. And he's telling this church that he loves so much that they don't even remember why they're even a church to begin with. And he tells them, and, and, and pay attention to this, in verse 4, he repeats himself twice. If he's got limited space to work on here, why does he repeat himself twice? Look at it again. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What did they not get the first time? It's either one of two things. They didn't get it, and he's trying to drive it in their heads. Or he hurts so much that they don't get it that he's trying with everything in his might to help them understand, and he can't even put it apart in his own head. You can't love the world and love your God at the same time. And if you draw yourself close to the world, you are pulling yourself away from God, and you are cheating on him. Jack, I know, 
I know that if you don't come home and that if you stay somewhere else at night, I know that anytime you're drawing yourself away from me and our kids, that you are drawing yourself towards somebody or something else. And I just want you to come home. Look, I know. I know that I haven't been here the way that I should have been, and I, I know that I need to be here more often with you and the kids, but it's just so hard. It's so hard when you nag and nag and nag, and I know I shouldn't feel that way, but I just don't know where to start to fix things. If I just knew where to start, I feel like I could be a better husband. Well, I'll tell you what I need. I need you to want to be around. I need you to be present in our lives. And you know, another thing you could do is, is when you tell me that you're sorry, and you've told me you're sorry a hundred times, at least mean it. Mean it when you tell me that you're sorry. Show me that you're sorry by actually doing the things you tell me that you'll do. Be present. We're not stupid, Jack. I know that you're lying. The kids know that you're lying, and they're kids. We're not stupid. If you tell us that you're sorry, mean it. And above everything else, why don't you just be around? Show us that you care by being present in our lives. Please just be Pull yourself towards us, Jack. Our marriages will, 100% of the time, tell our children and our grandchildren about the relationship Christ has with his church. The problem is, sometimes it's not positive. Sometimes it's broken. But it still teaches us all a lesson. James's church had cheated on their God they weren't present, and they had completely missed it. So I want you to look with me to verses 5 through 6, and we're going to look at this text together. And when we get to the word spirit, pay attention for it, I want you to pay attention to it and think about what does that word spirit mean? Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that Scripture says God yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us, but God gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I want you to keep those verses in the back of your mind as I tell you this. This conversation between a husband and a wife tells us about Christ's relationship with his church. And the people of God have always had a problem with cheating on him. As James writes to these Jews, they think back to people like Hosea who was told that he needed to marry this prostitute so that the people could see the relationship that God has with his people. And they didn't realize, this church didn't realize that they had been cheating, but they were. And James preaches to them. And remember, these aren't people he doesn't know. After his brother died, he dedicated his life to ministering to these people. He cares about them, and he wants them to see why they're a church to begin with. He preaches to them. And here's what I'm fearful of, church. If a thousand years before Christ came, the people of God didn't realize that they were cheating on him. And if 70 years after Christ came, the people of God didn't realize they were cheating on Christ, what are the odds that today, 2,000 years after his death, that we don't realize we're doing it either? That we're doing the exact same thing and thinking that there's no problem at all. I want you to look back with me to verse 
5, and we're going to look at that word spirit one more time. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? This word spirit, it is not the Holy Spirit that you get when you get baptized. That is not this spirit. In the beginning of all time, when God created man and he breathed into them, what? The breath of life. He breathed into them his spirit. And then I want you to think back to the book of Ezekiel when you had these valley of dry bones that were laying out. And God put flesh back over those bodies and sinews, whatever sinews are, and muscle and flesh, and they were completely whole bodies, but they were still lying out lifeless on the floor. What did they have to have in order to be functional again? They had to have the Spirit of God breathed into them. That's the Spirit that he's talking about here. God says that when you have forgotten to love your church, and when you have forgotten to love your God, or if you have never even started a relationship to begin with, you need to remember that God jealously desires for the spirit that's in you because you breathe to want him. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us. Not Christians, but every single body in the world, including Christians. He yearns jealously for that to return to him because we're all his. There is never a time you have moved so far away from God if you are alive and breathing that you can't return to him. When I graduated from high school, when I graduated from high school, the high school, or the, man, I left the sheep. I left the sheep in the pew, I think, or in my office. When I graduated from high school, they gave us these things called uh, rattleback stones. And that's what you see up there on the uh, the PowerPoint. These rattleback stones are created like the Egyptians even had them. They're not a new thing. They are old. And you can buy them at any childhood uh, toy store, okay? If Toys R Us wasn't closing, you could probably buy one there. It spins, and I want you to think about this. Why did a church give this to their seniors when they graduated from high school? This was their baccalaureate service. It only spins in the counterclockwise way. It never spins in the clockwise way. It only spins counterclockwise. Well, that'll preach by itself. Here's another thing that's really cool. If you try to spin it in the clockwise way, it will spin about three rotations, stop itself, and turn around and go back in the opposite direction. Why do you think a church gave that to its graduating seniors when they finished high school? It's because we were about to leave and go to college and they wanted us to know and remember that when we looked at that rock, there was never a time that we had spun so far out of control that we couldn't find out we were spinning in the wrong direction and stop ourselves and repent. They wanted us to know. That's pretty smart right there. I don't have my stone anymore. I guess that's pretty bad. But I remember the message that they wanted me to remember. They wanted me to know that there was never a time that as long as I had the Spirit of God that I couldn't return to him. So here's the situation with James's church. They have been at odds with themselves because they were at odds with their God. And what they needed to do, according to this scripture, is to repent. And this is what I love so much about this chapter. He tells them what they need to do to fix the situation that they're in. 
So I want you to look with me to verses 7 through 10. James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and God will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, uh, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to joy or to mourning and your joy to gloom. You've got to hurt people. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The first thing that you need to do in order to draw yourself towards God, to, to draw yourself in relation to God and away from the, from the world, is to admit that you're wrong. And you've got to know that you're wrong in order to be able to admit that you're wrong. They didn't know it. And I hope that through the day's sermon you can see that if my prayer life isn't where it needs to be, and my relationship with my brothers and sisters aren't where it needs to be, then maybe my relationship with my God isn't where it needs to be either. That's what I want you to see, because that's what they needed to see. And when you realize that you're wrong, here, here's another thing. It doesn't say, hey, uh, ladies, you need to be able to admit that you're wrong, and guys, we'll come up with another thing that you need to do because we know you're not going to admit that you're wrong. That isn't what the text says. Now, it's hard. I'm a man. It is hard to admit that I'm wrong sometimes, but guys, it's something that we absolutely have got to be able to do. And there is nobody in the world easier to admit your mistakes to than our Lord. So admit that you're wrong. The second thing that he does, I want you to look at verse 9. He says, you've got to hurt a little bit, people. You've got to hurt. Look at verse 9 one more time. Do not... Oh, sorry, that was chapter 9. That was chapter 5. Verse 9 chapter 4. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He says, you've got to hurt. Now, why would James tell these Christians that they've got to hurt a little bit? That doesn't sound fun at all, to hurt a little bit. He tells them that they need to hurt because they need to see for themselves that they hurt. Just like Jack and his wife and their children, they knew the guy was faking. Men, your wives know that you don't mean it when you say you're sorry and you don't mean it. Don't try to fake it. Really mean it, or at least try to. James is saying you've got to hurt. And it isn't because we can confuse or, or make God have a hard time understanding what we're doing. He knows that we don't mean it when we say that we're sorry and we're not. The reason we need it is because we need to know for ourselves that we really do hurt because we really have repented. How can you know that you've repented when you say that you've repented? One of the telltale signs is if you really have hurt in your heart. Now, as you grow older and you become and you get yourself entrenched in that sin, your heart will become hard like concrete. That's why we sing songs like hard, uh, Soften My Heart with Oil and Wine. The oil is you. We sing that song because our hearts become that way sometimes. And what we need to do is soften that heart so that we can continue to actually repent and grow in our relationship with God. Our, do you hurt when you make mistakes? That's a telltale sign. And the third and final thing, you need to be able to humble yourself before the Lord. If the first two weren't apparent enough, this one should drive it home. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. You have got to be able to humble yourself before the Lord. And I don't know about you, but I would rather do it for me than have Him do it to me, because He will. 
Nebuchadnezzar, think about in the book of Daniel, he was forced to humble himself by God because he wouldn't do it. God did it for him. He drove him out of his castle. I don't want to be that way. I want to humble myself so that he doesn't have to do it for me. And I wish for you that you would also. Now, if you're a Christian today and you know that you need to be humble before the Lord because you know that you've grown out of relationship with your brothers and sisters here and because you know that you haven't had a relationship with God that you should because, because you hadn't been praying at all, much less the right things to pray, then why don't you get prayers for that? And if you're not a Christian and you never have been, but you want to develop that relationship, here's what I want you to know. As long as you are breathing, every ounce of God's being jealously yearns for you to return to Him because you're His. Please, please, please turn to God because it's what He wants. And allow us to be your brothers and sisters. Why don't you do these things as we stand and as we sing? Sinners, Jesus.